fraudsters are global players as a general statement. The policemen, the people who are chasing them and monitoring them must also act globally. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. The quote you just heard at the beginning belongs to Tommy Thomas, the former Attorney General of Malaysia. In it, Tommy calls for more international collaborations for more successful international asset recovery. In the interview with Matthew, Tommy discusses his role in leading the investigation of the 1MDB scandal and ways to improve the Malaysian institutions in the fight against corruption. Now, without further ado, over to Matthew and Tommy. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and today I am just thrilled to be joined by Tommy Thomas. Tommy is best known to the international anti-corruption community for his service as the Attorney General of Malaysia uh, between 2018 and 2020, where he served as uh, the lead prosecutor and investigator in a number of very important investigations, uh, the best known of which are those arising out of the so-called 1MDB scandal. He came to the position as Malaysia's attorney general after a long and distinguished career in private practice. He has a great deal of expertise on a range of issues, particularly issues related to the fight against corruption. And he is the author of several books, but most recently his book, My Story, Justice in the Wilderness, which is a memoir that focuses substantially, though not exclusively, on his time serving as Malaysia's Attorney General. So, Tommy, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Professor, for inviting me. It's a great privilege, and thank you. Perhaps I can first ask you to say a little bit more to introduce yourself to our listeners, your own background, and how you came to serve as the Attorney General of Malaysia, and maybe a little bit about the kinds of investigations and prosecutions that you worked on during that time, particularly as they relate to issues of corruption. Yes, I mean, I was born in 1952 in Kuala Lumpur, the capital city of Malaysia, and I had my uh, schooling uh, in Kuala Lumpur, and then I studied and read law at the University of Manchester in England and was called to the English Bar Middle Temple. And I did a further degree in international relations at the London School of Economics, and then returned to Malaysia to commence practice in 1975. Uh, I, was, I was a pupil for a few months and then I was called to the Malaysian Bar in 1976. And from 1976 until 2018, which was just over 40 years, I practiced as a barrister in the, in the British sense, uh, specifically doing court work. In Malaysia, we have a few profession like in the US. A lawyer can do both. He can stay in the office and draft agreements and wills or go to court and do both. But I chose to specialize from the beginning and I was doing litigation, what you would call a litigator or barrister in English, British terms, uh, and uh, entirely a civil practice, corporate, commercial, and a bit of public law, constitutional law. So, I, and I did a lot of trials. I enjoyed doing trials. So I had substantial trial experience in, in the civil branch. And I was doing trials right to the time of my appointment. Uh, so that's my career. And then uh, as uh, Attorney General, yes, probably the, my main priority, I had three priorities, but probably priority number one was to focus on all things relating to 1MDB, which were civil, commercial, and uh, asset recovery in, in three broad categories. And so that was... Uh, my goal number one, objective number one, 1MDB. So terrific. So I think many of our listeners may be familiar with 1MDB broadly, but many may not. A lot of them have probably heard of it generally, but might not be completely familiar with the scandal or the role of that scandal in the political circumstances 
that led to the change in government that resulted in your appointment as attorney general. So rather than me trying to summarize that for our listeners, I think it maybe would be best if you could just provide a brief synopsis of the events that unfolded related to the 1MDB scandal and the consequences of that scandal for the previous government and how that fed into the uh, government in which you were eventually appointed to serve as AG. Sure. I, I think that the context is that by the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s, the Malaysian government had a definite economic policy agenda, which is for intervention by the state into what would you in US terms be traditional laissez-faire market spheres. So there was intervention by the state in very much sense of commanding facets of the economy. And that led to the creation of a lot of companies. They realized very quickly that the best form of doing business was through companies, the old-fashioned companies that started in the UK and Holland and spread across the world. And uh, where they would be able, the government would be able to the golden share control management without needing to own the share capital, the, the divorce between management and capital. So that was the background. So by the time uh, 1MDB was set up, and I say that because it was a company and people forget that, uh, it, it was set up in 2009, 2010, we already had a tradition of companies doing business uh, in the private uh, sector on behalf of the state. And so that's so in that sense, 1MDB was nothing new. Uh, but what was new about 1MDB, and again, I should say that it only had a paid up capital of 1 million ringgit. Think of it in the US dollars, just paid up capital of $1 million paid up, paid by the taxpayers' money, and yet managed to borrow billions and billions of dollars, which I'll come to in a, in a, in a few minutes. So it was a company where the management, the board of directors, was specially crafted to allow the former prime minister to have a lot of powers as, uh, as an advisor. So you had a board of directors in the orthodox company law sense uh, with a memorandum of articles and articles of association and the powers were given typically to the directors. But over and above that, the, the special advisor could, in a sense, veto the, the decisions of the board. So they, the, the control was exercised from the prime minister's office through the prime minister being a special advisor of the board, which was, of course, selected by him. So that was the modus operandi of 1MDB. And then, so then, okay, so the basic setup is there's a company. It's organized as a company. It's not an agency of the government. It's, right. it's not exactly an agency of the government, but it's a separate company. But the government has a role in appointing the directors. The prime minister has extensive rights to control the company. The company, as I understand it, is supposed to promote economic development in Malaysia. I guess it's supposed to support a variety of kinds of development projects. And even though a relatively small amount of its capital is provided directly by the Malaysian taxpayers, the company is able to raise huge amounts of capital, essentially by borrowing. And I presume the fact that it's a government-linked corporation is helpful to the company in its ability to raise capital on markets. Is that, was that fair or is that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. But in addition, there is a, a critical factor, which is uh, that those who were lending, prepared to lend, and there's always a queue of bankers, world-class bankers, whose names are all in the public domain. I don't have to repeat them. Uh, foreign bankers, US bankers, European bankers, Malaysian bankers were all happy to lend to 1MDB billions of dollars, they would have known that the share capital is only 1 million ringgit. Uh, that means the shareholders are only prepared to put 1 million ringgit. And yet they were, so why were they prepared to lend these kinds of things? Because it's, like it's against all risks. And the answer is very simple because in each of these cases, the government of Malaysia gave a guarantee. And so from a lender's point of view, you had a borrower which would probably go insolvent uh, at, with 1 million ringgit, but it does not matter because the guarantor is 
country, Malaysia, which has had always had a reputation of honoring its guarantees and honoring its undertaking. So we've had a high rating because of our honoring of contracts. Uh, so as a result, from the lender's point of view, from the creditor's point of view, this was a no-brainer because you are lending essentially to a country against the guarantee. The question was asked, who is signing the guarantees on behalf of the government of Malaysia? And the answer is under our law, uh, it's normally the Minister of Finance signs on behalf of the government of Malaysia. And the Minister of Finance was at the material time Prime Minister too. So he was both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance. And qua Minister of Finance, he's clothed with the legal power to sign guarantees. Great. So now that's a, an ex- incredibly clear explanation of the basic setup. I imagine that economists and public policy experts might debate whether this kind of structure is a good thing or a bad thing for purposes of achieving Malaysia's development goals. But then when does, how does the corruption scandal arise? So what, and I, I should say that there are still some of the cases are still being appealed. Some of the some of the allegations remain allegations where there is not a final court judgment. So I want to make sure that that disclaimer is included. But with that caveat, can you explain a bit again to listeners who might have heard of the one MBB scandal and understand that there was some kind of corruption involved? What allegedly goes wrong? How, where is the the bribery or embezzlement? Like, how does money start getting? potentially misappropriated by politicians and politically connected individuals. Uh, Can I start by uh, following up on your caveat, the qualification? I think that one of the features of 1MDB, as you would know, is the massive worldwide publicity given because they traded in many, many jurisdictions and borrowed from many, many jurisdictions. And spearheading that was the DOJ, the US DOJ, which, which, was clear, which must get tremendous credit. And by 2014, 2015, uh, or 2015, 2016, your attorney generals uh, were now having press conferences, which are all on the website, uh, introducing, mentioning the DOJ civil forfeiture claims, which I think by now, maybe 30, 40 in nature, and they're all on the, on the website. And then, of course, the Wall Street was reporting on it. The Sarawak report with Claire uh, Rukasel reporting about it. And our local papers, Singapore, Switzerland. So it, it, I, do, I don't think there's been a recent multinational scandal uh, that has received so much worldwide online publicity. So everything that I'm saying is really in the public knowledge. There's nothing secret. And you can find it all over. What I would say is that how was the fraud? I think it stated simply, there were uh, three bond issues, uh, which came to about nine to 10 billion US dollars. And uh, before that, another uh, multi-note kind of bond issue. So uh, essentially, 1MDB was borrowing and borrowing four times large amounts of money against, uh, supported by government guarantees, and essentially, when the monies were disbursed by the creditors who are the bondholders or the, or the note holders, they are, they are lending money, it was always misspent. So uh, the purpose that is often mentioned in the prospectus or in the information memorandum or the other documents that uh, accompany a release will say the monies will be used for purpose A. So everybody lends money based on the fact that it's going to be used for purpose A. But when the money is received by the borrower, 1MDB, it is used for purpose X. It's diverted and misspent. So that is stated as simply as uh, possible, the feature of the four borrowing exercises, that the disbursements or drawdown were misspent. And when you say misspent, is it basically an embezzlement problem that basically checks are being written to political officials or those connected with them out of 1MDB? Or is it more of a bribery situation that people in government are taking money to use their influence over 1MDB to get it to spend money on particular projects that the bribe payers would benefit from, as opposed to the people in power basically just having 1MDB pay them directly? 
Well, because we are we're talking of billions of dollars, even in, by US terms, billions, and of course, if you convert into ringgit, we're talking for 30, 40 billion ringgit. It's about four to one. Four ringgit is about US one dollar. They, they used it for various uh, uh, reasons. So all that you mentioned were used. So for example, the DOJ uh, forfeiture actions uh, were all in respect of assets bought, particularly in the US, from monies which the DOJ through their forensic accounting and lawyers could, and FBI could trace, originated from uh, 1MDB monies. It ended up through uh, different, different hidden and layered mechanisms, but it ended up in assets. So let's say it's a painting bought in the USA. Let's say it's a film uh, or a, a wonderful uh, hotel or a bungalow near the sea or a yacht. So it ends up in different, different assets, which the DOJ then, uh, using the US law to trace, sort of forfeit, got orders to uh, forfeit them. So that's one segment of expenditure. Then there's another segment where, yeah, they, they use monies to bribe all kinds of people. And of course, people forget that I suspect, and we still don't know enough of it, a large amount of it was just hidden in different, different jurisdictions. Because if you are a, f- a fraudster organizing these things, the masterminds organizing these things, you would want to squirrel them away and hide them away uh, in different, different jurisdictions. So there are still uh, billions of dollars that are unaccounted for. So that's essentially it. It's gone to many, many places over the years. Understood. And so then, so then when this scandal gets exposed, when, it, when the reports start to come out into the media, my understanding, this is a politically explosive event in Malaysia, and the government of the former prime minister, Najib, falls... And in the le- in next elections, he's replaced by Prime Minister Mahathir, who returned to power, right, having served a very long stint as, as Prime Minister of Malaysia earlier, had left office. And then at, I think at the age of 90 or something like that, there leads a coalition that wins the elections. And, and it's Prime Minister Mahathir who appoints you as the attorney general. So, so Prime Minister Mahathir appoints you. I gather that his campaign, and again, correct me if any of my suppositions about, or understandings about Malaysian politics are incorrect. But my understanding is corruption, the 1MDB scandal particularly, but corruption more generally, is a central theme of the campaign that Mahathir and his coalition ran in that election. He wins basically saying he's going to clean up Malaysian politics. You're appointed as attorney general, and 1MDB must be one of the big things that falls into your lap. Like You spent a long career in private practice dealing with mostly, as you say, civil trials, although I gather you've done some criminal work before. Um, and now you're the attorney general and you need to deal with 1MDB. So, so talk a little bit to me and to our listeners, like what was that like? How did you think about what you would do, how you would approach this problem? What challenges or difficulties did you encounter? Did you feel like you got adequate support from both the political leadership and the institutions of the the attorney general's office, the public prosecutor's office, talk a little bit about how once you took office as attorney general, you set about trying to address the enormous challenge of this, as you said, global scandal, a scandal that got global attention uh, in those, uh, in your years in office. I would just say that the starting point about 1MDB is that when the Wall Street Journal broke the story, and I think it was July 2015, when they broke the story that there was about 600 million US credited into Najib, the Prime Minister Najib's personal account in Kuala Lumpur. And that was, in looking back with the benefit of hindsight, the transformational event because no prime minister in the world or no public officer in the world has that kind of money in the private house, 600 million US. And that has dogged him ever since. And that became, uh, you couldn't hide it anymore. And then it was followed very quickly by the DOJ forfeiture actions. So it became an international scandal, Switzerland and Singapore and others followed. So when the general elections were uh, approaching and they were held in May 2018. By the late by late 2017, the opposition coalition very cleverly 
uh, went into alliance with former Prime Minister Trun Mahathir, who was in 93 years. He was Prime Minister for 22 years, and then he resigned of his own volition. And then he stayed uh, and he was succeeded by two Prime Ministers. So this is about 14, 15 years later, at 93. And he led the campaign, uh, say, in the six months before general elections. And he very skillfully summarized the 1MDB problem uh, to explain to the voters, because they are very, very complex issues. And it, you, it's quite easy to get lost in the forest or the trees and whatever. So, but, but uh, Dr. Mahathir, Tun Dr. Mahathir essentially described uh, the Prime, uh, Prime Minister Najib as a thief, Panchuri, and explained why he was stealing. And he ran a very effective campaign. And uh, of course, then the Malaysians voted. And uh, the, the new government came into power in May 20, 2018. Now, for those of you who are living in mature uh, democracies where uh, power is passed on at every general election, as you've just had in the US or, or in the UK or Canada or, or India, for that, that matter, where power often is passed from one political party to another or one political coalition to another after the the ballot box speaks. This is this was the first time that in Malaysia, after 60 years, we've had a change of government, a change of culture. So from 1957, when we got independence, to 19 uh, to 2018, 61 years we had one coalition. So this was transformational in many sense, landmark. Um, and then that is the background. And then yes, as you said, Tun Mahathir appointed me as Attorney General, and uh, yeah, one one MDB was my priority number one. So by, by the time I took office, most Malaysians were aware of 1MDB because it had been an election issue and thousands would have voted for 1MDB on the 1MDB uh, issue. And of course, the, 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 the informed press, the business community, the political community all were aware of it, which was quite good for me, actually, because everybody knew about it. So uh, to come back to my original question, that context is super helpful. So once you assumed office as attorney general, what kinds of challenges did you face with addressing this issue? So presumably, it's, it's been in the media, but you're a law enforcement officer. You need to figure out how to go about investigating the case, what strategy you want to use to try to hold accountable the people who are responsible. I assume, given everything you just said, you're operating in an extremely politically charged atmosphere. Just talk a little bit about what that's like. I mean, I've never experienced anything like that. Most of our listeners have never experienced anything like that. And it sounds like, given that your uh, professional background was mostly in private practice, you'd probably never experienced anything like that either. So what were, were there particular challenges or things that you needed to figure out how to deal with when you assume office? And what are the first things on your plate is how to go about pursuing the 1MDB investigations and prosecutions? Sure. I think at the outset, I would say that uh, nearly everybody, most individuals, most institutions that I worked with, they were very, very helpful. They understood that this was a national problem of great proportions and the people had spoken. So everybody was helpful. That's, that's the first point. It, for, for, for me, for me I, it's a question of choosing the priorities. So I realized that I was following 1MDB for, for many, many years, reading the newspapers and reading DOJ and whatever. Um, and so it is a question of prior, uh, choosing your priorities. You didn't want to get lost. So you really have to identify the principal wrongdoers, alleged wrongdoers, because you have to establish that in court. Uh, identify them, ident identify the episodes, the transactions, because when you say 1MDB, it is a catchphrase for many, many transactions and deals over a seven, eight year period. So you have to choose the transaction, choose the targets. And then of course, you, you want the enforcement agencies to investigate, which are the police and our anti-corruption agency, which are of course quite advanced in their investigations uh, but they just couldn't surface because the political will wasn't there. So uh, it was basically working with them and they, they had a lot of work in progress. So we speeded up the, the investigations. And uh, I was appointed in June, June of 2018. And by within, a, within a six weeks, we instituted the first charges in what became known as the SRC trial which was what we thought was one of the easier cases, but it ended up being so long. 
it was 42 million ringgit. So let's say 10 million US, which ended up in the prime minister's accounts. So that was our first prosecution. So the target was the prime minister, former prime minister, uh, an advisor to 1MDB. And, this, and then, of course, later we, we charged uh, Joe Lowe, uh, a, a significant player in the whole operation, and his father. Uh, but they, are, they, are, they fled Malaysia, so we could never get the trial going because under Malaysian law, the, defense, the accused has to be in the dock physically. Then we charged Goldman Sachs, um, and then we charged uh, one or two other officers related to 1MDB. Uh, that would have been in the first one year of our office. Uh, by then, we were quite stretched because of resources. You know, you don't have uh, such a large pool of lawyers and investigators. To So we said, look, let's have a pause for a little while. Let's focus on this. You just talked a moment ago about setting priorities. And I, I want to ask when you, you said so there was a particular case you did first and then you moved on to others how did you make the decisions about which cases to pursue or bring to trial first? Was it just based on what was ready and when the evidence was there? Or were there some strategic decision-making about, you know, let's bring this one first because the evidence is stronger, or if we win this one, it will lay the groundwork for this other one? Or again, is, it, is, it, is there a strategic decision-making process like that? Or is it more like you're working on a bunch of things at once and as soon as something is ready, uh, then you move ahead and bring it to trial without necessarily trying to pick which case you want to go first for broader strategic reasons. So I, I remember having a meeting with the, the enforcement agencies very early on, maybe the first two or three days of turning up to work. And they told me they're quite advanced in the A, B, and C and not in X, Y, and Z. So I said, oh, come on, how quickly can you get uh, your papers ready uh, for us prosecutors to look at? So they said, oh, maybe on matter B, quite fast, but in matter Z a long time. So it is basically being pragmatic about it uh, because there was already a lot of um, interest in the matter and everybody was uh, looking for it. It was a very pu- a public that uh, really was hoping that things would start going. So we, that's what we did. But of course, it is always ready. We were ready. So when we prosecuted, and I think it's in July, August, I, I can't remember the exact date, but it's July, August of 2018, our first appearance in court. And we were ready for the trial by November, but the trial only took place in February the following year, but which is still quite fast considering the amount of documents that we had to produce in court and the number of witnesses and just to give you a, an idea of how, of how complex the whole thing finally developed was that when the trial judge delivered his written reasons, what we call the grounds for judgment in the SRC trial, it was about uh, six, uh, five, 600 pages. It is the longest judgment in Malaysia's history. So that is how complex that was. So that's over. That's the one on appeal now. It's, it's, an, it's an appeal in the intermediate appeal court in the next few months. The one other question I want to ask you, you mentioned in your remarks just a moment ago, your interactions or your collaboration with Malaysia's Anti-Corruption Commission. The I, I know it's the MACC. That's the that's right. acronym. Uh, I'm not sure if that's, that's the same acronym used in, in Malaysia. So it would be very helpful for me, and I think for our listeners too, if you could explain a little bit more the relationship in Malaysia among the different institutions that deal with legal accountability for corruption offenses. Because many countries, as you know, including very many in Southeast Asia, have a body called the Anti-Corruption Commission or the Anti-Corruption Agency and so forth. But they have many different forms and many different responsibilities and different relationship with the Ministry of Justice or the Public Prosecutor's Office. And can you talk a little bit about, in Malaysia, what the division of responsibility is between the office you headed as Attorney General and the MACC, uh, and how those two departments or agencies, and maybe others that are involved as well, uh, work together? Yes, I mean, I think the starting point is to appreciate the differences. So the police and the MACC investigate, and in fact, Securities Commission. There are a few agencies which are tasked by law to investigate. And they have sweeping powers to investigate, to get documents, to interview witnesses and the accused and whatever. 
And at that stage, the public prosecutor's office, the AG is also the public prosecutor. So the public prosecutor doesn't really get involved on, apart from a bit of guidance. But the investigation is done by the agencies. And then when they complete, they, and they're independent, and uh, they do it themselves their own way. And the police, for example, they've got a very good commercial crimes di division, which was also quite advanced in their own investigation. So it was MACC and the commercial crimes of the police. Uh, they were investigating. And when they complete, they pass to the public prosecutor what they call the investigation papers, the IP. And then the prosecutor's office looks into that and reads it and studies it and sees how strong the case is. And of course, at that stage, there'll be a, a bit of a to and fro between investigating officer and public prosecutor because the public prosecutor is going to try the case in court and uh, do the arguments in court. I would have to say, look, I need more documents on this. I need more witnesses on this. You've got to fill up the gaps. So when the process is ready, the public prosecutor, or there are about five, four, 500 deputy prosecutors in the chambers, and they then decide to prosecute. Of course, in all the 1MDB cases, I, I took the decision as the public prosecutor. And then once we decide to prosecute, uh, then we bring uh, the, the accused are brought to court. And then they are charged in court. And we have to establish on a beyond reasonable doubt at two stages. One is for the defense to be called. Uh, and then, of course, to, to have accused convicted. So it's the three separate, so separation of powers, three separate uh, agencies, very, very, very much influenced by the British system. And I guess the US too, the FBI, DOJ, that kind of thing. So you mentioned... So, um, that the MACC in particular has a great deal of independence. And I gather in that respect, it's like many other anti-corruption authorities in your region and beyond. So the Hong Kong's, uh, the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission is I think one of the original models of this, but there's a great deal of institutional autonomy uh, and independence from the political branches. But as you say, in Malaysia, the MACC is princi has principally investigative responsibilities, not prosecutorial responsibilities. So in that way, it's different from the Hong Kong IACC, which can do its own prosecution. With respect to independence from the political branches, what if any institutions or mechanisms or safeguards are in place on the prosecution side to address concerns about political interference in sensitive anti-corruption investigations. I'm sure you must know around the world this is a concern in both directions. Sometimes the concern is if an investigation or prosecution involves people who are in power or connected to those in power, there may be pressure on the prosecutors not to bring charges or to go easy. On the flip side, and maybe this might more accurately describe a situation in Malaysia post-2018, when the prosecutions are directed at the political opponents, of the people who are currently in power, especially if those who are in power have accused the former uh, officials of being corrupt. There may sometimes, I'm not saying this was actually true in Malaysia, but you, the general issue is there may be concerns there could be pressures on public prosecutors to bring cases or to be more aggressive with political adversaries. So some countries, again, some jurisdictions like Hong Kong uh, deliberately insulate the prosecutors for corruption cases extensively. Other countries like the United States don't really. There are informal norms and understandings, but there aren't strong institutional barriers. And in fact, in the United States, the attorney general and other senior officials in our Department of Justice serve at the pleasure of the president, at least as an official matter. So I'm not that familiar with Malaysian Malaysian institutions. So can you talk a little bit about institutionally, both in terms of formal structures and in terms of informal norms or other mechanisms how does Malaysia address concerns about political influence on anti-corruption prosecutions in either direction? And do you think the Malaysian system is sufficient in this regard? Or do you think this is an area where some kind of reform is needed? Well, the starting point again would be that I, I'm, I'm for the system where separation of powers is important and there shouldn't be too much concentration of power. So uh, that's the, uh, the general principle. If you apply that, if you, if you give the investigative agencies power to prosecute, then it's too much power. It can be abused. So it is better to diffuse them. So I would rather have the Malaysian system where three or four different agencies investigate. They are independent. 
and they do it themselves. And when they complete the task of investigation, they pass it on to another branch, which is prosecutors, which are also meant to be independent. And then when the prosecutors are ready, they present it to the court, which is certainly independent judicial branch. So uh, that, that was a traditional British model, uh, which most Commonwealth countries, the Westminster style, have adopted. I, I'm not so sure about Hong Kong, but I, I, I give deference to you if you say that I, IAC also prosecutes. I wouldn't want that in Malaysia. I wouldn't want them to prosecute. Which I think it's really in any country, it's a combination of institutions and structures and systems on the one hand, very important, but it must also be supported by men and women, uh, individuals of integrity and uh, honesty and principle and courage occupying these positions. It, because it, uh, one in the absence of the other collapses the system. So if you have wonderful institutions and structures, but uh, the human beings who man it poor, then it doesn't work and vice versa. And just the U.S. system is, let me just comment, the U.S. system, all of us outsiders could not understand how President Trump, one man, could do so much things to upset the, the, the system in four years. But because at the end of the day, there were enough institutions and enough honest men, in, he couldn't go that far. But it tells you how important it is for the character of the pers- and the personality of the incumbent. So the comparison to the U.S. is really interesting because, of course, I'm an American citizen and many of my fellow citizens and I have been thinking about a lot of the issues that you just alluded to. Uh, We've had previous episodes of this podcast featuring some leading experts from the United States trying to think about these issues in the U.S. context. And one of the questions very much on the agenda in the U.S. right now is, do we need in our country reforms to the institutions and structures to make them more effective at resisting political pressure and at effectively investigating and holding accountable even very powerful people who are engaged in wrongdoing. And I'd be interested in putting to you uh, the similar question or set of questions about Malaysia. So what you just said before about the importance of having individuals of integrity seems to me absolutely correct. You also said, though, that another critical element of the equation is having institutions and structures in place that can both attract people of integrity and enable those people of integrity to do their work properly. So based on your nearly two years of service at the highest levels of the Malaysian legal system, combined with your much longer period of time observing your country and thinking about its challenges, what would you say the institutional reform agenda should look like in Malaysia? Obviously, there's been a change of governments, and we might talk about that in a moment. But if you had the ear of the prime minister and the parliament, and maybe the public prosecutor's office itself, and you could outline a reform agenda uh, of you know two, three, four, five items, particularly directed towards improving the system for addressing high-level corruption of the sort that was exposed in 1MDB, what would that reform agenda look like? In what ways do you think the institutions and structures in Malaysia can and should be improved over, the, over where they are right now? Yeah, I think I, the, uh, the first thing we would do is we should separate the office of the attorney general from the public prosecutor's office. So that's been the demand, for starting with the bar, the, the legal profession in Malaysia for more than two decades. And in fact, it became part of the manifesto of Tun Mahathir's government to split the office. And when I assume that office, because we are now, the the Attorney General is both the chief legal advisor to the government, the executive branch in particular, uh, and also the public prosecutor. So after about two, three months in the office, I saw the prime minister and I mentioned that in the book, that I told him there is another practical reason to split the job because it is really humanly impossible for one individual to do it competently. So we really have to, Uh, split the office of the public prosecutor uh, and have an independent director of public prosecution, director of public prosecutor. And there are any number of examples now, uh, the UK, Australia, quite a few countries have gone down that road. I I, mentioned those examples because they are closer to our system of Westminster Commonwealth style governments. 
So that's the first priority. Um, unfortunately, we need to amend the constitution for that because the Attorney General's office and the, the position of the Attorney General is a constitutional position. And to amend the constitution, we need two thirds. But I don't see why they can't get an all party support on that. Then insofar as uh, uh, corruption is concerned, I think the, the, the simplistic lesson on 1MDB would be, but of course, it's just addressing 1MDB uh, it would be, and I think that the, the new prime ministers have said that, that the, you should not have the prime minister and the minister of finance being the same person. You cannot, the, the same person cannot occupy the two positions because they're so, first of all, very important and also very time consuming. It's, and Trun Mahathir said that. So when he became prime minister, he, he, he appointed somebody else as the Minister of Finance, and that practice has continued. Because 1MDB tells us that if the, the roles are combined, Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, the Prime Minister chairs the cabinet, and the Prime Minister is, of course, most powerful. He drops people from the cabinet, he appoints people from, into the cabinet, and then he is also able to sign the guarantees and other make financial decisions. That's too much power in one office. So those are simplistic measures that can be done. But I think a reform as such um, in Malaysia in particular uh, is a massive responsibility because we have built up over 30, 40 years, a large mass of laws which are outdated, which don't serve the purpose, which really has to be repealed, has to be looked into. And a reform would take literally two administrations, it's be two governments, it's a 10-year plan, and ideally, the coalition should be re-elected after the first term, and they should have a 10-year plan, and they should say, term one, first, the next five years, we have these laws to repeal, these laws to enact, and then the next five years, something else. A lot of the laws can be reformed by just new, new laws in parliament where you need a simple majority. Some need constitutional amendment, which is much tougher, but... There must be a political will. The prime minister of the day and his cabinet must be interested in law reform. That actually is a perfect uh, transition to the next and potentially, given the time, final topic I want to ask you about. And that has very much to do with the political situation in Malaysia right now. And as I said earlier in our conversation, I'm not an expert in Malaysia. I've been there a few times. I'm interested in the country. I don't know that much about it, but... Um, I have friends and colleagues and students who follow Malaysian politics very fairly closely, and I've been able to absorb from them a bit of perspective on what's been going on in Malaysia for the last two or three years. And there's a kind of a, a depressing, cynical take on what happened in the years after Prime Minister Mahathir was elected to again serve as prime minister and as the head of the coalition. And this, I'll, I'll, I'll spin out what the depressing narrative uh, that I've heard sounds like, and you can tell me if this is accurate or not and, and what to do about it. It goes like this. So there's this moment in Malaysia where the general public is fed up about corruption. 1MDB is bad in and of itself, but it's also highly symbolic of the kind of pervasive corruption that's existed in the Malaysian political class for decades. Former Prime Minister Najib is a perfect symbol of this because, as you say, he's got $600 million in his personal account and can't give a plausible explanation where it came from. And so uh, Mahathir, who's a bit of an unlikely anti-corruption champion, because during his 22 years as Prime Minister, it's not like Malaysia was totally clean, but he runs on this anti-corruption platform. And in the early days of his administration, there's an announcement of an anti-corruption uh, strategy or platform. There are proposals for law reforms along the lines of what you had just suggested and others as well. And so uh, there's at least the international anti-corruption community and perhaps in Malaysia too, it's like a moment of optimism and hope. It looks like maybe this will be a moment of transformative change and we'll get the kind of 10-year agenda that you just described. But then it all falls apart, or so it seems. It seems like a few things happen. One is Corruption is a central issue in Malaysian politics, seems to recede a bit, and traditional cleavages along ethnic lines and religious lines become more prominent. Mahathir's government doesn't even make it, I think, through two full years. It is replaced by uh, the party, the, the old party that had been in power since forever, and the new prime minister is viewed as close to Najib, whose cases are still under appeal. And there are concerns now about interference with the freedom of the press, 
about appointing people to senior legal positions, judgeships and prosecutorial positions who are sympathetic with the party in power and maybe unsympathetic towards the anti-corruption prosecutions. And it it seems like that moment of hope that a lot of people had not only in Malaysia, but internationally, in Malaysia, but also internationally in 2018 has faded a bit. So that's the kind of dark and negative story that I've heard from some of my friends who are observers of Malaysian politics. I'm not in a position to evaluate whether that's right or not, but you are because you're there and you're an expert on these things. And you were, you were right there when all this time in the government, when this time period was, was unfolding. So is that story, do you think that um, negative characterization is fair? Are those critiques accurate? Are they not accurate? And if you think there was a bit of a lost opportunity that the, the moment, the political moment in 2018 hasn't really uh, carried forward to push the anti-corruption agenda ahead, what's your diagnosis for what went wrong? And maybe more ambitiously, what, if anything, could be done about this going forward to try to recapture some of this momentum to address the deep systemic corruption that has pervaded the highest levels of Malaysian politics for so many years? Uh, The entire result or consequence of what's happened is after the prime minister decided to resign on his own and he did not consult even his cabinet members and and the other parties, he resigned on on 24th February uh, 2020, that's right, short of two years in, in office. There were really no objective reasons for that resignation. Uh, it wasn't as if parliament was sitting, there was a motion of no confidence against him, uh, there was no alternative coalition, he had the numbers in parliament. So I addressed that towards the end of my book. It's still a mystery why he resigned. And after he resigned, then it had Pandora's box was open and all the problems uh, arose. So in a sense, it is a bit unfair to criticize the new prime minister because he is benefiting from the opportunity that was presented because the door to the new government, to the new premiership was opened, self-inflicted by the incumbent prime minister who just had no, there were no objective reasons to resign. He resigned on the 24th of February, opening the door, paving the way. And of course, when that happened, that that whole week, any number of people were jostling for power. That's understandable. You can't criticize them. They all jostled for power and one winner emerged, which is the current prime minister. And uh, uh, all the parties in the different coalitions had to re-engage themselves. There was a shift in alliances. Again, very typical of 20th century politics in many, many countries, Italy, even Germany, India, where they all move around. Uh, So that's what happened. So the the voters who voted for the Tun Mahate coalition, which was, of course, the majority because it was a 54-50 difference in the majority vote, a comfortable majority. So they are in the majority. They lost the coalition they voted for, and it was replaced by a coalition that they did not vote for. So the winners became the losers, and the losers became the winners. Uh, and this was not at the ballot box, and we've got three years to go. So the, the, the voters were cheated out. And of course, they, the, the incumbent government which took the opportunity. We give them, they, they, are, they must be congratulated for being elected uh, or appointed, I should say, appointed. They were then, they were very lucky because it was followed by COVID because the new government took office on 1st of March uh, 2020. And then we had lockdown on 18th of March when COVID hit us. And one year later, we are still going through the COVID measures. So COVID has provided them with a lot of cover because the man in the street, because of the economics of, and the business and labor issues that flow from health decisions. So a lot of millions of people are struggling. They got to worry about the food on the table and the job. And so uh, daily necessities have uh, overtaken the, the concerns of politics and all that. So it is a struggle for them. 
but those who can afford the luxury of thinking about these matters in COVID-stricken Mala- Malaysia as the rest of the world, of course, they are very disappointed. And so they have to wait for the next election. And the next election, the next general elections would have to be called by 2023, June. Uh, so it's, we are about halfway now, about two and a half years. Um, but under our system, the prime minister can advise the king to, to uh, dissolve parliament. That's, but that's his prerogative to, if you want to have earlier elections. But the, the life of parliament ends uh, in June 2023. 20, and then it's, it's time for the voters again to cast their ballots. But as things stand, the, ma- the major reason for people's complaints is that they say this is not the government that we voted for. The coalition we voted for is no longer in power. And a simple example would be that the Americans voted for a democratic president for a four-year term. And suddenly after two years, if he was replaced by a Republican president. So it's that dramatic. That's fascinating. And I can understand why that really um, would throw the whole political system or narrative into a, a state of uh, chaos would be too, too strong, but certainly uncertainty and frustration. I feel I, I know we've talked for a long time, but if you indulge me, there's one more topic I really want to have a chance to ask you about before we wrap. And it's on a, a, a quite a, a different note to some degree, but I want to circle back to 1MDB um, and talk in particular about the process of trying to recover the assets that were essentially looted from Malaysia, from the Malaysian taxpayers, from the Malaysian government, and so forth. So obviously part of the 1MDB work that your office did had to do with prosecuting the wrongdoers, holding the people who engaged in the fraud accountable. But I gather another significant part of this had to do with tracing, freezing, and ultimately uh, achieving the return of these looted assets. And that part of the work, I gather, involved substantial international cooperation because many of the assets, I think the, the vast majority of the assets that were uh, stolen or misappropriated or where the proceeds of unlawful activity were located outside of Malaysia, including in places like the United States. And because you've worked on this issue directly, uh, at least my understanding is that you have, I would very much like to get your impression on how well the international asset recovery system is working or not working. And my question is prompted in part by the fact that I recently had the opportunity to read the uh, panel report from the United Nations High-Level Commission on Financial Accountability and Transparency, the the FACTI panel report. And for this podcast, I had the opportunity to interview a member of that panel. And one of the issues they focus on is international asset recovery. And there are some significant criticisms raised in that report. I've also been to conferences where representatives of places like Nigeria, for example. I saw, I, I observed, I was a witness in a room of a very contentious exchange from an, between an official from Nigeria and an official from the U.S. Department of Justice, where the former was complaining that the United States was not moving quickly enough or, or appropriately enough in returning assets that had been looted from Nigeria by a former president. And the FACTI panel report, again, raises these issues, and they, and they propose, for example, that an international mediation system be set up to facilitate uh, the resolution of these kinds of cases. They propose that when assets are frozen, that instead of continuing to be held in the jurisdiction where the assets currently are, for example, the United States, they be placed in an escrow account with a regional development bank, for example, which is a proposal I hadn't seen until I read the FACTI panel report. And I'm an outsider to all this, and I'm not sure I really understand the, how well or the system is working or not working. And I think it would be a great service to me and to our listeners if you could say a little bit about your experience in 1MDB or other related cases with trying to locate and eventually secure the return of assets that were stolen from the Malaysian people. Well, for fraudsters well, planning their frauds, invariably move their assets and their uh, ill-gotten monies out of the jurisdiction from which they are operating. So when fraudsters do not recognize boundaries, national boundaries, they are online, they are international, they are world, they are global. Fraudsters are global players as a general statement. The policemen, the people who are chasing them and monitoring them must also act globally. 
because if the policeman doesn't act globally when the fraudster is acting globally then you are at a tremendous uh, disadvantage you massive handicap so it is critical that we are talking of white collar fraud and this kinds of white collar crimes that you have to have international cooperation so at the, at the civil level you have liquidators in different uh, countries uh, working together but in criminal jurisdictions is the state gets involved so one of the best things about for malaysia in one for one mdb was by the time we started doing things in june 2018 in the new government we could take advantage of the advances made by doj in the us with this kleptocracy unit and all the great stuff they did with fbi for 3 4 years because they have mandate to follow the us dollar wherever it goes uh, and then switzerland uh, and singapore and one or two other jurisdictions so all of these jurisdictions had done quite a lot of investigation investigative work prior to june 2018 and uh, the the mutual legal assistance the what they call the mla treaties that we have with all these countries allowed us to take advantage of that so we are in a sense we are sitting on the shoulders of others who've done who've gone there before so in my case i i just telephoned uh, my counterparts in all these countries and and of course in singapore one could visit uh, i never i never came to the us or switzerland because of time but they 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 visited us and it it, it was wonderful cooperation so i think for cooperation you must have again structures which i think are generally in place now and you must have the personal chemistry it's as simple as that it's as simple as that if you get on with your counterparts uh, in other countries and you work together for a common goal then a lot of progress can be achieved of course i don't know about the about the nigerian example that there may be uh, explanations but but the malaysian experience and our experience was that it was very very helpful and malaysia and i say that many times the book malaysia is should forever be grateful for the role that these countries play to to help us because it speeded up the whole process you talked about assets the, the looting all, all the assets were most of the, a lot of the assets were in the us and uh, after they, uh, they they had to go and get court orders to freeze and then get into deals with jolo and others to consent to them being sold then they were sold into cash whether it's from paintings or films or buildings transformed into cash and then repatriated back to malaysia and also we've had billions of dollars coming from the us and about 1 or 200 million from singapore so it it is a, a it's a success story so the 1mdb global efforts is is a success story and i'm happy to talk about it wherever that's in some ways very very encouraging uh to hear because as i'm sure you know when one works on issues related to corruption and anti-corruption you don't get that many success stories usually you get a lot of complaints about how things aren't working well and are going wrong so obviously without minimizing the many many problems that still remain i think it's always good uh to highlight those success stories and those bright spots when they occur um both to give us maybe a little bit of optimism and also because it seems like that we can learn from those areas where things are working fairly well and it seems like for all the other challenges and all the other problems in this case the collaboration with authorities in places like the United States and Switzerland and Singapore to successfully identify freeze and and repatriate assets was in fact a a success story the cooperation worked well and reasonably efficiently so, can i just mention indonesia can i thank indonesia because indonesia oh. on the yacht because the yacht Uh, the, the economy was uh, arrested by indonesia because it's in indonesian waters and then they alerted us and it arrived in malaysia and then uh, we under malaysian shipping law the process went through and we finally sold it uh, so that's also uh, described in the book so uh, again thank you to indonesia so terrific so again it's it's uh, it's it's very encouraging to hear that at least in this case the efforts to cooperate internationally to secure the return of assets worked well um and in so far as there are other contexts in which it doesn't seem to be working so well it actually seems like those who care about this issue would do well to study the Malaysia 1 MDB example and try to get a sense building on what you just said a moment ago and possibly by paying attention to what you've written in your book about why it was successful um and maybe ways to try to replicate that so that that's terrific so that so thank you very much
Uh, let me say thank you more generally for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to speak with me and to share your experience and insights with our listeners. Uh, so again, this is Matthew Stevenson. This has been another episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. And my guest on today's episode has been Tommy Thomas, who after a long and distinguished career as a private litigation lawyer served as the Attorney General of Malaysia from 2018 to 2020, who continues to, back in private practice, continues to engage with and work on issues related to both legal reform generally and anti-corruption. And uh, he tells much of his story, including the story of his work uh, on anti-corruption during his uh, government service in his recent book, My Story, Justice in the Wilderness, which uh, those of you who have uh, enjoyed this podcast and want to learn more, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy and check it out. So thank you again. Thank you for your time. Uh, and thank you for your service to your country and to the international community. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Tommy's work, as always, check out the show notes. If you want to receive more corruption-related content via social media, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. You can also help us greatly by using your own social media channels to post about Kickback and recommending us to your colleagues and friends. We are a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Kickback is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for now. Have a great week.